I'm going to play a game called Name That Movie. Okay, I'm going to give you a quote from a movie, and I want you to tell me what movie this is from. Okay? All right, first one. Have you seen these toilets? They're ginormous. What's it from, anybody? Elf. Good job, Elf. All right, how about this one? You can't handle the truth. A few good men. There we go. Two for two. All right, how about this one? Uh, just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Finding Nemo. Little Dory, just keep swimming. How about this one? I'm looking at you, Malia. My precious. Lord of the Rings. Uh, how about, how about, let's see, I got to get this one ready. You ready? Martini. Shaken, not stirred. James Bond, Goldfinger. Come on. Uh, how about this one? If you build it, he will come. Field of dreams. And how about this one? Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least for a while. But you tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Braveheart, William Wallace. All right. The reason we did that is because I love that scene from Braveheart. I love that picture of William Wallace. And most of us picture ourselves like if we were threatened, if, if good was being threatened, if bad was going to be potentially taking over, most of us view ourselves like William Wallace. Like if this was going on, we would paint our face, we would stand up, and we would stand up for what's right. We'd stand up for truth. We'd stand up for the things that are important, and we would paint our face just like William Wallace and say, you'll never take our freedom. We'd all be willing to risk everything for what's right. Of course we do that. But what about when someone questions our faith? Not just our freedom, but what happens when someone questions God? Are we ready, like William Wallace, to paint our face and say, you'll never take away my faith? I mean, we have that picture that, that if somebody were to question God or question truth, that we would stand up and we say, no, I'm a Christian and I believe God is real and I'm going to be bold about that conviction. Again, we all would say in that moment, I would be strong. Now, I'm a pastor. I have given my life to teaching this book right here. I uh, serve the Lord. Uh, I honor God. I proclaim faith in Jesus as a solution, as a solution to people's problems. So if anybody's going to paint their face and stand strong for their faith, it should be me, right? Because I, I, I can be pretty bold standing behind a pulpit. feel like I could be William Wallace proclaiming the truth about God. But can I tell you there's times that I have failed in doing that? My faith story, uh, some of you know, is, is I uh, became a Christian when I was in high school, my senior year of high school. And uh, coming through that, uh, my decision to become a Christian, it created a rift between my mom and I. My mom was, that was an offense to her. And so as we're getting ready to graduate, my mom says to me, Kevin, I'm selling the house and there's not going to be room for you. And so uh, I say I was the only kid in my high school class that graduated high school but had his own apartment because of the way things worked out with my mom. There was this animosity, this rift, this division that was created because of my faith in Jesus. Well, God did some healing in our relationship, and my mom and I were able to, to, to get things kind of squared away. 
But I, I tell you what, over the next 17 years, like God called me into ministry. I became a pastor. I'm doing what I'm doing now. I'm teaching scripture. I, I'm, I'm telling people, hey, Jesus is the answer. But I tell you, for 17 years, not once did I tell my mom about Jesus. Not once did I broach that topic of my faith with her. And why? Because I feared losing that relationship again. I didn't bring up my faith. I didn't bring up Jesus again for 17 years until my mom was dying of cancer. Till finally I said, you know what? <laughs> I think it's worth the awkwardness. It's worth the potential of being turned around, of, of things being turned, disruption in our relationship. Let me ask this. As we all think that we would paint our face and we'd stand up for truth, how many of us have friends and family that maybe we know don't believe in God? We know are, uh, at best, they're antagonistic towards faith. How many of us have some of these people that, that, that we don't talk about those sorts of things? We won't talk about God with this relationship because we know what's going to happen. We know it's going to be a fight. We know we might lose that friendship. We might lose that, that family member. And so rather than allowing things to get awkward between us, we just don't talk about those sorts of things. See, I think Satan is, is very good at this. I think Satan is good at creating fear in our minds and almost even justifying it of saying, you know what? You don't have to talk about God to this person. They know how you feel. You don't need to ever say it again. It's better for you to have the relationship where you could be a witness for them, right? Satan is so good at that. And we fail to have that bold conviction. We fail to have that courage to stand up for the things of God because we're afraid of the relationship. It makes me think of a quote I read from Dr. Martin Luther King. He said, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and the actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. You think about that? Like, we don't just have to repent for the bad things that we do. But there's some of us that probably should repent because we've been silent and the times that we should speak up with boldness and conviction for the things of God. And I think about this. I think about how much of an impact could we make in our families? How much of an impact could we make in our city, in our world, if we had the courage not to remain silent? If we had the courage and we took those bold opportunities to speak the truth of God, to speak the things of God to the people around us, regardless of how it's going to affect our relationships. We're in this series where we're looking at the book of Acts. We're seeing how the early church became a movement that impacted everything around them. And it's been so encouraging for us to be able to see what the early church looked like. Today's passage in Acts chapter 4 is a continuation of what we've been reading the last couple of weeks. If you remember, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on the way to the temple, and they see this, this disabled man, this guy who couldn't walk. And Peter looks at him and says, hey, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man is healed instantly. He's up on his feet. He's walking and leaping and praising God. He goes to the temple. And all the people in the temple are like, what is going on here? They're like, hey, we recognize this guy. He was disabled and now he's healed. And a crowd gathers around Peter and John. And Peter 
Peter's a good pastor. He takes an offering. No, that's not what he does. Peter, he says, hey, I'm going to preach a sermon. And actually, this sermon, uh, sometimes we think 40 minutes is, uh, this sermon was probably upwards of three hours. He preached a long time, okay? He preaches this sermon, and the end of the sermon, it says that there's going to be uh, another 5,000 people that are going to be added to the church in that day, which is pretty exciting to see the growth of the early church. But you know, one of the things that happens is as the early church, as they're becoming this movement, as they're becoming a movement that impacts everything around them, it began to disrupt the customs of their society. See, there was a group of people uh, in that day called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were uh, this educated, wealthy, religious elite. These were people that were in cahoots with the Roman government, so they had a little bit of control. And they had the ability to essentially control Jewish political and religious life. Okay, these were elite people. These were a little bit snobbish. And they were able to control what was happening for the Jewish people. And not only that, these people were religious, but they didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles. And they certainly did not believe in the resurrection. And so here you have this religious people that are trying to be in control, trying to control what's happening in the, with the people. And all of a sudden you have these disciples, this early church. And you've got Peter and John in the temple. And they're preaching, and crowds are gathering. And they're talking about Jesus rising from the grave. And these Sadducees are like, hey, something's going on here. Those people become a threat to their power, become a threat to their influence. And in our text that, that Corey read for us this morning, because their power and influence is threatened, they arrest Peter and John and put them into jail and bring them before trial. And this is a moment for Peter and John to stand tall, to be bold, to speak up for what's right. This is a William Wallace moment. Stand up and paint their face and say, we're going to stand for what's right. And as we look at the story of Peter and John, how they stand up for what's right, is an example for us on how we can be a people that would stand up for what's right, because it's not automatic. We don't be a people that stand for truth because we have good intentions. No, Peter's going to teach us that our, it's, our bold confidence in Jesus is not automatic. It's a result of making Jesus the cornerstone of our life. So here's how our text starts out in verse, Acts chapter 4, verse 1. It says, as Peter was speaking, the priests and the captain of the guard and the Sadducees, they came upon them. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Again, here's those Sadducees. Here's these, these religious people, these people in authority and power. They feel threatened because Peter and John are gathering a crowd. There's a large group of people. Again, the church, we saw in Acts chapter 2 that there was 3,000 added to the church. Acts chapter 5, there's, five, there's thousands of people becoming a part of this movement. And so the Sadducees are saying, wait a second, wait a second. Why are all those people listening to those guys? They should be listening to us. So their, their influence is being questioned, is being uh, uh, targeted. And then these, these, uh, these disciples are talking about how Jesus rose from the grave. And these religious leaders are saying, no, we want to control the religious narrative. We want to tell people what you can and cannot do in your faith. And they're preaching something totally different. Again, it's, it's their influence, their power that is being targeted by the early church. 
So they do something about it. Verse 3, it says, They arrested them and put them in custody. And the next day, to, to the next day, because it's already evening. This right here is the first persecution of the early church. In fact, persecution is one of the, is one of the themes that we'll see again and again in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 4. There are 24 remaining chapters in the book of Acts, and 21 of those chapters are going to deal with some sort of persecution. Persecution is a reality when we are actually going to follow Jesus. Because here's, here's what happens. When we're serious about the things of God, when we're serious about our faith, we're serious about God, we have a real enemy. Do you realize that? We have a real enemy who will do anything to stop the work of God in our lives in our families, in our church, in our world. We have an enemy that will do anything he can to stop God from doing that work in our lives. The reality is if we're going to walk with God, we're going to face suffering and rejection. It is reality. Jesus said this. Jesus said in John 15, he said, if the world hates me, no, no, this is what he said. I got to actually look at it. He says, if the world hates you, you should know they hated me first. He says, a servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as well. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Obviously, we know that there are countries in the world today where where you can be jailed because of your faith, that you'll be rejected from society. There are countries where your life is in jeopardy if you claim, hey, I believe in Jesus. I'm one of those Christians. Now, obviously, that's not necessarily where we are in our country. Yet, our country is incredibly divided. And when we be people that stand upon the truth, that stand upon God's word, that stand upon what Jesus has done for us, do we not get called all sorts of things? Bigoted, haters, limited, all these different things. See, there's this rejection and ridicule that many of us experience when we are willing to stand for the things of God. And Jesus said, listen, if you're going to be serious about me, this is a reality of life. And so what Peter and John are facing, they're thrown in jail. In verse 5, it says, The next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem with all these different people, Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all people from the high priestly family. And when they set Peter and John in front of them, they inquired them and asked this question, in what power and in whose name do you do this? Now, context. You've got Peter and John. They've gone to court. You've got all these these authorities in front of them. Now, these authorities, some of these authorities are the same people that condemned Jesus to go to the cross. Some of these people are the same people that, that put the Savior on the cross. How do you think Peter's feeling at that moment? These are the people that killed his Messiah. How do you think Peter's feeling? Anxious? Afraid? I mean, we could all look at him and think, man, if you would just be quiet, man, you'd be fine. You'd walk out of there and you'd be able to go and and be used for ministry. Man, Peter, if you would just be quiet in this moment, they'd release you and then you could go back to the church and do your church thing. You know, and I think about Peter, I think, Here's Peter in front of these religious leaders. Remember a couple weeks ago? A couple weeks ago, Peter was following Jesus as Jesus was going to, to, to the cross. And a little servant girl, a little girl comes up to him and says, Hey, 
I recognize you. You're one of Jesus' followers. And what does Peter say? No, I'm not one of them. He curses to prove he's not one of uh, uh, the followers of Jesus. That was Peter in front of a little girl. Now Peter's in front of these religious authorities that have the power to put him to death. How do you think Peter's going to respond? This is an opportunity for Peter to take a risk, to share a bold message, to show his conviction that Jesus is real and that Jesus is the Savior. And he's going to deliver a very bold message. It says in verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is something that we're going to talk again and again in the book of Acts. We already said in Acts chapter 2 that when we become a Christian, we receive the Holy Spirit. He, he lives inside of us. We, we, we get all of the Holy Spirit when we place our faith in Jesus. But what we're going to see in the book of Acts is we have these multiple fillings of the Holy Spirit. These fillings of the Holy Spirit where we, where we uh, surrender our thoughts and our fears and our wisdom. We surrender ourselves over to God and God fills us afresh with the Holy Spirit. Allowing God to work in us and through us. And here's Peter, undoubtedly with some fear. Surrendering his fear to God and allowing the Holy Spirit to use him. So it says, filled with the Holy Spirit. He said to the rulers of the people and the elders, he said, if we've been examined concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that is why this man is standing before you well. He says, are we being questioned because we did something good for this lame man? Is that why we're here today? And Peter's like, let me tell you what it is. It's because of Jesus of Nazareth that this man was healed. Let me ask you this. When someone asks you your story, Tell me your story. Tell me what you've been through. Whose name do you use? Oh, let me tell you what I've been through. Uh, look at all I've overcome. Oh, let me tell you all these things I've done. No, Peter is very intentional here. He could have said, well, me and John, we, we healed this guy. He could have said, God healed this guy. But no, under all this pressure, filled with the Holy Spirit, he proclaims this gospel message in front of the religious authorities, the people that have the power to kill him. He says, let it be known to all of you. Let it be known to all the people of Jerusalem. Jesus of Nazareth is the one who healed this man. And look, he's, he, uh, the next verse, he's going to quote out of Psalm 118. He says in verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He says, there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we may be saved. Isn't that awesome? This word cornerstone is not a, a word that we use in our construction. When we build buildings today, we don't build with cornerstones anymore. But we probably are familiar with that term cornerstone, right? Like I'm getting really excited as, as baseball season is upon us, is upon us. You know, we would look at the Mariners and we say the cornerstone of the Mariners, man, is, is Julio Rodriguez, right? Like he's the one player that we got to have if we're going to be successful. 
Well, you might look at your business and you might think about your business and you're like, hey, Joe is a cornerstone of our company. Like if we didn't have Joe, we couldn't do, I'm not saying, I don't know who Joe is, whoever it is. Like we get this idea, cornerstone is an important piece. It's the foundation. You, you, you build around it. That's, that's what the cornerstone is. Back in Jesus' day, when you were building something, the cornerstone was the, the largest stone. It was the first stone that was put. It had to be the, it was the most significant stone because if that stone was not put in right, the building would fall down. And here's what Peter says to these people, to these religious rulers. He says, you should have known that Jesus was a cornerstone. You have the Old Testament. The Old Testament points again and again and again to Jesus. You religious leaders, you should have known that Jesus was a cornerstone, but instead you rejected him. You rejected him. Jesus is the one name under heaven that all men can be saved. But you religious leaders, you rejected him. Verse 13, it says, when these religious leaders, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, and they realized these guys were uneducated, untrained men. These guys were fishermen. They didn't have Bible degrees. They hadn't been to seminary. They, hadn't, they weren't intelligent by any means. Yet when they saw they were uneducated and untrained, they were amazed. Verse 14, they saw the man standing with them. They had nothing to say in opposition. Here's all these religious elites, these political leaders, with all the power, all the influence, they can't think of anything to say. They are overwhelmed and embarrassed because these ordinary fishermen spoke with such boldness and conviction. They shut down any argument they could have turned back on them. And they're amazed that these fishermen would be able to speak with such power and authority and conviction. Verse 15 not knowing what to do. It says they, they ordered them to leave so they could confer among themselves. In verse 16, it says, well, what do we do with these men? It's obvious that there's been a, a sign, a miracle has been done through them, and everybody in Jerusalem knows it. Everybody knows it, and we cannot deny this miracle. So what do we do? Verse 18, it says they called them in and charged them and said, do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. These leaders were so hard-hearted, so intent on protecting themselves, on clinging to their own power and influence and authority, they refused to even acknowledge the miracle that happened right in front of them. Refused to, to acknowledge what had happened right in front of them. Refused to consider the truth about Jesus. And Peter and John, they respond with such faith and boldness says verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or to, rather than God, you must decide. But verse 20 says, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Now, here's a question I want us to, to think about based on this passage. How do we be a people that would stand bold for the things of God? How do we be a people that paint our face like William Wallace and stand like Peter and John when facing opposition and rejection and criticism? 
How do we be a people that stand for the things of God? How do we have such courage and conviction? Well, Peter shows us. He said in verse 12, Peter said this. He said, this Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which became the cornerstone. What Peter is saying is every one of us has a cornerstone. We have a cornerstone in our life. The cornerstone is the central focus of our life. It is the foundation of our life. Our cornerstone is what gives us security and hope and peace. It is the most important thing in our life. Peter says every one of us has a cornerstone. Now the question is, well, how do I know what my cornerstone is? I mean, we can all claim, well, God, of course, God is my cornerstone. And I'm sure that, that, that Peter, when he denied Jesus in front of the little girl, I'm sure he would have said, well, Jesus is my cornerstone. So here's, here's how you determine what your cornerstone is. A couple different ways. Number one, what do you spend your money and your time on? You do an assessment of where you spend your money and how you spend your time. That is revealing to you as to what is foundational to you, what is most important to you. But the other way, the other way for you to know what your cornerstone is, is what gets you emotional. What gets you fired up? Because when your cornerstone, when your security, when your foundation is threatened, you can't help have emotion come out. You can't help but get a little bit fired up. No, no, you are not going to attack my cornerstone. I'm going to get right back up in your face. The Sadducees, what was their cornerstone? What did they get emotional about? They would claim, well, we're, our cornerstone is God in our country. That's what we're all about. But what do we see them fighting for? We see them fighting for power and control. That's why as Peter and John are preaching about Jesus, that threatens their control over the people. They're going to rise up against that. As they say, Peter and John preaching about, about the resurrection of, uh, of Jesus, they see this church becoming a movement that's a threat to their power. And they become emotional about it. We're going to do something about it. We're going to rise up. We're going to arrest you. We're going to throw you into jail because you are attacking our cornerstone. What was Peter's cornerstone? Sadducees, their cornerstone was power and control. Peter's cornerstone, was it not Jesus? Because as Peter is threatened, he can't help but stand up and defend his cornerstone. He knows Jesus has made all the difference for him. He knows that there's no other, no other name under heaven by which he can be saved. Do you know that truth? There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. Not George Washington, not Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, not Taylor Swift or Joe Rogan or Geno Smith, not all the Benjamin Franklins you have stored up in the bank, not your mom, your dad, your spouse, your child, not Joseph Smith or Muhammad or the Pope or Buddha, not even your pastor Kevin yet. None of these names will save you. Who's the name that's going to save you? Jesus. That is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. Peter is like, yes, and amen. That is it. 
And he's going to stand up and say, that is my foundation. That is my cornerstone. You threaten my cornerstone, I'm going to get up and I'm going to defend them. What gets us emotional? What gets us fired up? I love this picture of Peter because this is his opportunity. He's given the opportunity. And again, his boldness, his bold conviction, it doesn't happen by chance. It doesn't happen because he's been to church a few times. It doesn't happen because he has good intentions of standing up for the things of God. No, Peter organized his life as, with Jesus as his cornerstone. And that is where that bold conviction comes from. That's what gives him the courage to stand proudly for the things of God and proclaim Jesus in the face of persecution is that he has built his life around Jesus as the cornerstone. It's a foundation as a most important thing. In fact, here's, here's the summary of this passage. That this bold confidence in the things of God, a bold confidence in our faith, is a result of us making Christ the cornerstone of our life. If we're going to be a people that stand boldly for the things of God, we've got to be a people that make Jesus the cornerstone of our life. So let me ask that question. What is your cornerstone? What are you building your life around? What are you looking for, for security, for peace, for joy, to make life good? Oftentimes, we build our life around circumstances. Oftentimes, our cornerstone is related to what's around us. Our cornerstone is our money, it's our power, it's our influence. Sometimes our cornerstone becomes related to our performance. It's look at my success, look at my accomplishments, look at my degrees, look what I've overcome. Look at how people value us. These become very real to us as being our cornerstone because they feel pretty good. Sometimes our cornerstone is a person. We make our cornerstone our spouse. We make our cornerstone our child. We make our cornerstone a parent. Where if that person leaves us, if that person is, is, is things are bad with, with them, man, our life is upside down because the cornerstone is threatened. Sometimes we build our cornerstone around organized religion, our tradition, our theological con convictions. Sometimes we make our cornerstone our politics or our patriotism. And these become the things that we are going to stand on and be bold about. Not that these things are bad. There are times that we should boldly defend those things. But the question is, are any of those things, are they the cornerstone? Are they the most important thing? Are they where we will find hope and peace and security? Is there gonna, are those things going to make our life complete? I'll be honest, there's a lot of us in here that would claim, oh, we love God. I think there's a lot of us that are very genuine in our love for God. And we would all say, he is so important to me. But is he most important? Maybe it's just me. But if I'm being honest with you, 
There's times when my cornerstone is myself. It's me. It's my wants. It's my desires. You'll see my emotion come out when you threaten me. My accomplishments. My pride. Because all too often, I love God. I do. But all too often, if I'm being honest, I've put myself as that cornerstone. You know what Peter said? Peter said he could only have one cornerstone. And if Jesus is not your cornerstone, Peter says we are like those religious rulers. We have rejected him. Jesus can't be number two. He's either number one or nothing. Because if he's not number one, if he's not the most important thing in your life, he's not the thing that's going to give you satisfaction and completeness. And if not, you're not going to build your life around him. It doesn't matter if he's number two. You've rejected him by not putting him as number one. Let me ask this question. When is the last time you took a bold risk and shared a bold message about God? When's the last time you took a stand for your faith? And I'm not, I'm not talking about being obnoxious and being the guy that stands outside of the street corner holding up a sign saying you're going to go to hell. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. When's the last time you told someone about Jesus? When's the last time you took a stand for the things of God? When's the last time when somebody was struggling You didn't just give them good advice, but you said, let me tell you about Jesus who makes all things right. When's the last time that you told somebody there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved other than Jesus? Because I tell you what, we're really good at giving you advice about telling you, hey, you need to do this with your money, you need to do this with your politics, you need to do this or that to fix what's gone wrong in your life. Are we convinced of this message? There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved other than Jesus. Because I tell you what, if we want to experience the church becoming a movement, They became this movement because they stood boldly. They had that courage and that conviction to stand for the things of God. No matter what persecution they're facing, they're saying, no, let me tell you about this Jesus. He's the answer. He's the cornerstone. He's the one that matters. And they stood boldly for that. And God blessed it. And they became this movement that impacted everything around them. Because they made Christ their cornerstone. So let me close with just two simple steps on building a life with Jesus as our cornerstone. Number one, we have to develop a relationship with Jesus as our Savior. You see, there's a difference between knowing about God, knowing that he's important, liking what God can do. There's a difference between preferring God over Satan and actually knowing God as your Savior. You see, we can know some things about God. We can say, well, I prefer God over Satan. That makes me a Christian. Well, no, actually, Scripture says we actually have to have a relationship with him. See, Jesus is God in the flesh 
who lived the life that you and I couldn't. He was arrested and hung on that cross. And on the cross, he took your punishment upon himself. He paid your penalty. He died in your place. And he rose from the grave, conquering sin and Satan and death and hell. And the book of Acts is so clear. It's not just believing in that. No, Acts is so clear that it is faith in Jesus and repentance that leads to a redeemed relationship with God. Listen, if Jesus is going to be our foundation, we have to come into a relationship with him as our Savior. Not just having knowledge about him, not just preferring him, but actually having a relationship with him. If you've never come into a relationship with him, surrounded your heart, Men, today's the day. I will tell you today, there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved other than Jesus. And that's the invitation is that you would place your faith in him. You would pray and say, God, I recognize that I am a sinner. I am guilty before you. But I believe Jesus died in my place. I believe Jesus rose from the grave to conquer sin and Satan and death and hell. And it's by his name I can be saved. And when we put our faith in that. And that is where we develop that relationship with him. There's a second step for us to build our life with Jesus as a cornerstone. And it's actually in the text. It says in verse 13, the religious leaders, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that these guys were uneducated and common men and they were astonished. Verse 13, it says, they saw that they had been with Jesus. See, if we're going to build our life with Jesus as a cornerstone, we've got to be a people who spend time with Jesus. Those religious leaders are saying, hey, there's something different about these guys. You know what it is? Yeah, they've been with Jesus. They spent time with him. They've focused on him. They've invested in that relationship. See, this is where our faith is not just a set of beliefs that we, uh, oh, I believe these things. Our faith is not just something that we click on social media. I'm a Christian. Let me share a Bible verse. Our faith is not just checking off a bunch of religious things that we're supposed to do. It's not a tradition or formality. Our faith is an actual relationship. You know how you, know how you grow a relationship? You invest time and energy in that relationship. So let me ask you this. Do you have a Bible? Do you read it? Now, often you'll hear a pastor say, you need to read your Bible. And I'll be honest, there are seasons in my life where my Bible will sit on my desk for a week without me cracking it. Are we reading the Bible? Are we praying? Not just praying and saying, God, here's all the things I need you to do for me, but are we praying just to, to, to talk with him, to commune with him? As we think about church, again, I'm not talking about organized religion. Do we recognize that church is simply a group of people that are walking through life, figuring out how to deepen our relationship with Jesus? Again, we have this idea like, like yes, Jesus, I would stand strong for you, but we don't ever spend time with him. We don't focus on that relationship. No, if we're going to have that bold conviction, we've got to pursue that relationship. I heard it said like this. The trouble with so many people 
is the voice of their neighbors is more constant than the voice of God. Is that true of us? We spend more time listening to the people around us rather than spending time with Jesus, growing our faith, growing our knowledge of who he is. Again, the early church was remarkable. Acts 4, they're on the way to become a movement that's going to shape their culture, that's going to change their community, that's going to bring light into the dark places, that's going to redeem the broken parts of their community. And it is a result of people that had a bold conviction, that had bold courage, that knew there was no other name under heaven by which men can be saved other than Jesus. By a group of people that were convinced that as they focus on the relationship with God, that would enable them to organize their life with Jesus as a cornerstone. Not themselves, not their experiences, not any other person. As they spent time with him and developed that relationship with him, that enabled them to have a foundation built on Jesus, a cornerstone of Jesus that would allow them to stand strong in the face of that persecution. It's our desire here for Restoration Church. We'd be a people that have a cornerstone believing there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. That we'd have that courage and that conviction in the face of opposition, of rejection, of ridicule. To be so convinced of this message, so convinced of this, that we're willing to stand and face that difficulty, that strained relationship, that rejection, because we believe there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Let's pray.